This is a piece by a guy named Larry Taunton. Larry who? Never heard of her. What sort of a man is he? Pick from Bama. A man like any other, but more so. Well, I thought he was dead. This is the Larry Alex Taunton Show. Let's light this candle. Welcome in to the Larry Alex Taunton Show. I am Amy Beth Shaver. That's Larry. Hey, Larry. How are you? I'm good. I'm a little perturbed that we didn't make it to your fixed point Christmas party because my husband had the plague. Okay. Um, just the flu. However, it sounds like there was great merriment. There was, but before we get to that, um, you've been following your son, Will, who plays yes. for the University of North Carolina uh, basketball team. You followed him to, to Portland. Yes, we went to Portland. and um, We lived through it. Yeah, well, first, before we get to the basketball, <laughs> um, did you participate in any like burning of federal buildings or anything well, like I, that? You know, I was triggered uh, <laughs> when we were going to the Starbucks in Courthouse Square. Yeah, I was triggered in the Target when there were tripped out people in front of us next to a young family, not my own, I'm not young anymore, uh, with their little baby, and they were in the self-checkout line, and I was watching a guy just trip right in front of me, and I was like, this is this is a whole nother thing. You mean and like? Like literally he is high as a kite. Okay. And he is tripping in front of us, body leaned forward, hunched over, and I'm thinking, all right, don't panic. No one in here is panicking. This is normal behavior for them. This is normal for the the wonderful people of Portland. And let me say, Powell's Books was amazing. The food was fantastic. Fellowship was great. It has been cleaned up dramatically since two years ago um, when Wesley worked out in Medford, Oregon, and we drove to Seattle. That was a complete disaster. But it's still not good yeah. to walk past human beings curled <laughs> up under porticos, um, living in tents, decorated with trash. But this is normal to the people of Portland. Portland's and overrated. You know, what's interesting is that Oregon is actually quite conservative. You know, yes. Most of it. And then you get to Portland. Yeah, you get <laughs> you get into eastern Oregon, eastern mm-hmm. Washington. They're both very conservative. But you get into Seattle, you Ugh. get into Portland. Uh, it's crazy liberal. You know, I... I rode the Columbia River Basin. Did you really? Uh, on my bike, I did five. Wow. I, I, I did, I did five days before I was hit by a car, and um, I—that is before my big accident. I was out in Portland. We chose Portland to do a, um, a excuse me, not Portland. We chose Seattle okay. to do um, a big debate. A debate I did with um, with Michael Shermer in the down, downtown in the town hall. And of course, we knew there's going to be all these snarling atheists, you know, who were there. But that's why we chose it. I wanted to go into the belly of the beast. I wanted to have, I wanted to have an audience that was full of atheists, uh, in order to have the opportunity to proclaim the gospel in front of them. But then, when that was done, um, I rode the Columbia River Basin and. Uh, uh, from into Portland and uh, and really enjoyed that. It was very very beautiful. But it yeah, is the, beautiful. The smell of pot. 
And it wasn't as bad as two summers ago. No kidding. We're, okay, so we're driving from I'm Medford surprised. eight hours up to Seattle because, you know, if you work there for the summer and you say, Mom, do you want to come in for the weekend? Let's do this. Yes, I'm going to say yes. Yeah. Because I'm proud of your moxie. Yeah. But we were driving there and the smell of pot just kind of hung like pig pen's cloud over the car as we drove. And I'm like, how are you even breathing, Wesley? And she was like, not well. This is disgusting. Um, but then there were times where you really caught strong whiffs of pot. Um, you know, I'm noticing. Oh, my gosh. I'm noticing that it's, you know, used to, it was very rare that I ever yes. encountered that smell. You know, you'd rent a car and you would, yes. you would You're smell. You're like, oh, somebody was boxing. strong smell, yeah. yeah. So what is it was, called, hot boxing in here? Somebody yeah, was hot boxing in the car? Big, big time. But um, now it's, you know, I was in Atlanta. I was at the airport. Mm -hmm. uh, recently, uh, coming back from South America, or maybe I was going or both, but the strong smell of pot everywhere in that airport. I mean, you just couldn't escape it's it. Gross. And now I'm I'm starting to. I was in downtown Birmingham, and I was there at my son's office, and we were walking to get some coffee. And uh, multiple times as we we're walking along, you have the mm -hmm. strong smell of pot. I mean, pot has become the thing that. Just isn't. It's just not enforced. It's just not enforced mm -hmm. at all, and even in states where it's not legal, like Alabama, it's right. uh, it's not legal. But they're just like, yeah, you know, don't worry about it. But anyway, out in out in Portland, did you buy any pot while you were out there? Uh, also tempted. <laughs> no, I, don't, I would like to let you know that as much life experience as my husband has, it's only been two years ago with the proliferation of pot that he realized that is not skunk, is that it, is pot. Is it a fair question for me to ask you if you've ever tried pot? It is, and I haven't. You haven't. I haven't. I don't like to be out of control, so I barely. What if we set up cameras in here and then we just <laughs> no. we just let you we just let you puff away, and then we could do sort of a time elapse sort of thing to see you know oh how you progressively gosh. degenerate the kind of things that you say. We it'd, it'd be you know it, we we could. We could live tweet it. You know, sure. it would be interesting. Sure, that'd be so fun. <laughs> I've never tried but it either. I, producer Matt's like, <clears throat> yes, let's do it. You know, Listen. it's so funny. You mentioned our Christmas party. You mentioned our Christmas party. You know, we we have alcohol at our Christmas parties. The bar setup did look lovely. The bar setup was was beautiful, and uh, somebody very kindly um, donated that. And maybe this is a whole a whole different show here uh, that we could get into, but. You know, there are occasionally those Christians who are maybe some who are watching, and I never want to be a you know a stumbling block um, to those people who believe that it's that it's wrong, that it's immoral. But I often wonder. Um, I'll never forget being sharing the stage with Russell Moore, hmm. which is again a whole other conversation. Yeah, that, who was crusading against? Matt, we got to remember the that the two of us, just the two of us, were doing a Q and A um, at. A mega church. He had spoken one night, then I spoke the, uh, the the next night, and then we did this. We did a sit down, you know, Q and A with the pastor and and congregation. And here he was, you know, he he didn't like Veggie Tales. He condemned Veggie Tales, oh. and he believe you know he maintained that the alcohol in John two was not fermented. And I've often reflected on that for real. Yeah, that's he, a, he, like he, an actual out of his mouth. That was an actual actual take. But let, how do you go from that point of view to now where he is, where he's so much more worried about um, 
you know, uh, the America First or, you know, MAGA people uh, than he is about the sexualization of children, than he is about critical race theory, about all that sort of stuff. But anyway, all of that said, <laughs> all of that said, um, I, you know, I'm not a guy who likes alcohol, you know, and it's it's not for religious reasons. It's because I just genuinely don't really like, I can like a mimosa, mm-hmm. you know, a little champagne with some, some orange juice in it. I can sip on something like some wine I can find a little bit tolerable, but I generally just don't, in particular hard liquor, I mm-hmm. don't like the taste of it. But there are people, we will have make something like this available you know, at our party, because there are those people who who do, in fact, um, uh, uh, like it. But we've yet to have a pot bar, <laughs> you know, where you could, you could, you know, here's okay. here's the the, the bartender right. will mix you a, you know, a whatever, and then you you go over to the pot bar. We haven't done a pot bar yet. What about a pot brownie bar? Oh my gosh, I've uh, yeah, I have a bad story about uh, pot brownies, but I'll, you've had one. No, I've no, I've no, I've never had one. <laughs> okay, but many years ago, um, at a school um, that I was uh, where I I taught, someone brought them and oh. distributed them to oh, students without no. them knowing. Oh no, that they had pot in them, and uh, so you had all these kids, you know, who were high. So it was. Uh, <laughs> It was How a, did it was that a thing. work? Actually, I mean, were they in your classroom and they were? Uh, you no, know, to be honest, I I don't I don't really recall those details of how that all played out. Um, I don't know that I witnessed any of it. I I think that there were others who knew something's off on Johnny's acting a little weird, you know, or something like that. But they they had knowingly mixed, you know, and mm. made these brownies and students and brought them. And distributed them to other students, and you can imagine the outrage of parents. You oh, know, for sure. My child um, was was taking an illicit drug and, and didn't even know it. You know, taking it at, at at school. But yeah, that that was the thing that happened. But our Christmas party, our Christmas party was fabulous, and um, yeah, probably our best. I think Fixed Point Foundation, <clears throat> uh, of which I'm the director. Uh, Fixed Point Foundation, uh, a nonprofit, we do a Christmas party every year. And the Christmas party is actually fairly expensive um, because we don't charge anything um, for that party. And um, we have, you know, a nice catered meal. And, um, you know, as we just mentioned, you know, there's beautiful wine and so on that's served. And this year we did it in our home. We did it at Layla and, and it was perfect. Because the weather was, we have had years where, you know, let's say it's, it was raining mm-hmm. or it was really, really cold. Um, a couple of years ago, I want to say it was like 38 degrees and it was that wet oh. kind of cold. Makes you mad you It just goes through your bones. And our house at that time was not big enough to accommodate oh. um, as many people. So we had, to, we had all these huge tents set up outside with heaters in it. But because people are coming in and out, in and oh. out, in and out, it may be... You know, instead of it being 38, let's say it's 45, you know, in the tent. So it wasn't great. And um, this year, the Birmingham Boys Choir, uh, Ken Berg, who is the director of the, the Birmingham Boys Choir, they've become kind of part of our tradition. Um, and they they volunteer their time. They come and they sing not the full choir because that's like a 150 kids, but um, a few of them along with um, the members of their staff, 
We had maybe, I think, 14 of them this year. They sang, and it was beautiful. I, I wish I were a better you know, videographer, a better photographer to capture that because I, I didn't really feel like uh, we needed Matt to, you know, to be there to really capture that on film. But it was beautiful. The house was beautiful. Lori did such a great job with that. And because the temperature was, let's say, maybe 65. It was really nice. We could nice. kick open all the doors mm-hmm. and you could flow from the decks to the porch to the interior and then with the you know the fireplaces going and the Christmas trees and the big Santa and uh, we had a food truck this year uh, that was my favorite Mexican food truck. They were a huge hit. Although this was this was very funny. <laughs> this was very funny. I didn't know this. They they were serving tacos, so they really made it really just a taco truck. And um, I mean, people lined up and went back for seconds, thirds. Who doesn't love people, a taco truck? Well, they were great. Did you know though? You know they serve the tacos with two shells. Really? Have you have you seen that? No, I haven't. And this is a taco truck that is the taco truck we always talk about. Yes, okay, it's that's that taco what I truck. They okay. came, and they got here about an hour early. Began, you know, prepping all the meats and all this kind of stuff. I want a taco truck. But you would, you know, you you could choose, you know, a, let's say a beef taco, a chicken taco, or pork, and uh, and then they they had the little tortillas, but they put them on two tortillas. So the debate began: What is the second tortilla? Is it because they're pretty sure the first one's going to break? You have any idea what the second one's for? They no. They explain that the purpose of the second taco, which to me is genius, is that they're made for like most street tacos. They're made for you to eat kind of on the go. So you you take the first taco while you're holding the shell underneath, and because it has so much food in it. It goes into the second one. Oh my word! You eat the first the one bonus when you're done. Fry taco, and then you take the second <gasps> one and you eat it. This is so wonderful! <laughs> really? Yes. So that's what you do. But oh. it was funny. They had they had a table set up where you could add you know all the mm-hmm. fixings, and they had a green sauce and a red sauce. Oh, yum! And so almost everybody you know dumped liberally that red sauce on there, and that stuff would set your mouth on fire. Oh, my husband would love so that. So it was hilarious because after a while, you know, somebody said, hey, I'm going to go out to the taco. So people go, uh, 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 avoid the red sauce, avoid the red sauce. You know, so <laughs> very it was, hot. <laughs> it was so funny because people were, were just getting lit up, but it was so good that and you not just by kept, pot, you would be, by the hotness of the sauce. Uh, yes, uh, you'd, you'd have little beads of sweat. And, <laughs> oh, it was but hot. But because it was so good, you just keep powering through. You know, just keep yes. eating it, and your you know sweat is running down your face, and and you, and you look like you're in pain, but you just keep going. You know, uh, so that was very great. that was very funny. But no, the Christmas party was was wonderful. People who are watching, uh, listening, um, you know, you have an opportunity to come. Um, we do it every year. If you're on the Fixed Point Foundation mailing list, just go to Larry Alex Taunton, T-A-U-N-T-O-N, LarryAlexTaunton.org, or no, I'm .com. I'm .com. Excuse me. I don't you're even know my own website. I LarryAlexTaunton.com. You scroll to the bottom of the homepage, and you'll see a place to subscribe. You'll get this podcast. You'll get all the articles. Everything you know goes there, but we mail out every year to our subscribers an invitation to come to our Christmas party. And so we have tons of people who come that I've never met. Mm-hmm. You know, there are people who come from... Now, we do cap how many we allow because the house just can't accommodate, you know, more than about 75 or 80. 
we could we could maybe do a little more than that. But anyway, um, we have people who come from Texas, Tennessee, Florida, Georgia, Mississippi. We've had people come from California, Illinois, wow. uh, you name it. And it's because a lot of times people are very That's hungry for fellowship. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I gave a little talk, and uh, and then the boys' choir sang, and and anyway, it was it was wonderful. Well, that sounds fabulous. Yeah. Everybody mark your calendars, really, for next year. Yeah, we haven't set the date yet, but we need to. Well, we'll just pretend set the date. <laughs> Go ahead and mark your calendars. Um, well, how about this? Um, we have a segment you you invented, but we'll get to that after a break. We'll yep. take a break. All right, Let's so stay, stay with us. We'll be right back. ABS, Automatic Braking System, also known as Amy Beth Shaver, pumps the brakes. Okay. Now we are back on the Larry Alex Taunton show and uh, I'm Larry Alex Taunton and uh, the hostess for this show is Amy Beth Shaver. If somebody said on Twitter, you know, you really just carry me through the whole show. <laughs> and, uh, and so we, we've built into the show a segment, um, you know, that sounded like a laugh, like, ha ha ha, you know, like, of course you don't. But I didn't mean it like that. I didn't mean it like a condescending laugh. I meant it as a laugh because I thought it was very witty <laughs> that someone said that. But you don't actually want to carry me because I'm a fairly big person. Yes. And you don't want to have to do that. But so that you can carry me through the next, you know, five minutes of this show so I can sit back here and, you know, do something else. It's now time for the ABS moment. Um, Amy Beth Shaver or Automatic Braking System. Um, that thing in the culture that makes you slam on the brakes. So what is it? This one is Christmassy. Okay. Okay. You okay. don't like Christmas. No, I love Christmas. You're a Grinch. And you, no, I'm not a Grinch, <laughs> but this relates to Christmas and uh, I feel deep shame over it. And I need to know if you are these people. Um, are you Christmas card people? Um, you mean like sending out Do you send Christmas out cards? Christmas cards? You'd have to ask Lori that. I, I don't send out Christmas cards. I mean, do you take a beautifully landscaped, <laughs> no. architecturally detailed no. family photo, send it out on beautiful paper, maybe with a vellum wrapper? I don't even yeah. know. You know, just with the Christmas letter and all crafted that? with beautiful calligraphy. No. Do you do that? No. Yeah. No, I'm pretty sure we don't do that. We don't do that. I'm, I'm triggered by it. I feel deep shame over it. it. A lot of people do it. They include their, and I'm very happy for them. Okay. So this yeah. needs to come across as I am joyful for you. I'm, I'm cheering for you when I get the letters detailing all of the wonderful things that your family has done over the last year. Do you know what I'm talking yeah, yeah, about? Yeah. Okay. So you should send out the anti-Christmas letter. I, this is a genius idea. You yeah. know what? Maybe I'm finally motivated because my dear husband is—he <laughs> is a blessed man. And for two years, he sent out Christmas cards when the kids were younger. And one of them has our bulldog he at the it. time. Our bulldog at the time running through the picture. <laughs> Because I wouldn't just hire a photographer. But I failed for <coughs> 25 years of marriage to send any Christmas cards out. 25 years. I think years. it's okay. And I want to say I'm sorry, but I'm triggered by the beautiful cards that just come through my front door. He also gets the mail. This is the highlight of his day. And he it's brings so in the Christmas cards. And I think I am a Failure is a human being. <laughs> and then the failure is compounded, layers of an onion, where I read the letters and I think, I, I, 
Like you I, know, I can't. Now, he even makes. He he even used to make calendars for the family. Like yeah. he's amazing. Wow. He loves Christmas. And I, I'm just I love like, Christmas, but I haven't done that. And it's funny about the mail. Uh, I never get the mail. You don't? Uh, no. I, I only know if there's I, I cannot think of the last time I opened the oh letter. Oh my gosh. He or wrote gets a check. The mail. My kids, or wrote a check. But uh, Lori gets the mail and I only know and I'm not I'm not exaggerating when I say this. I only know if there's anything in the mail for me or of interest if Lori puts it on my desk, like, you'll want to see this. Yeah. But otherwise, I never do. Uh, Lori used to be a, a Christmas letter person where she'd write what all the kids are doing, and then there would be a picture, and not not as ornate as what you're talking about, just a just you know something something printed up on you know some kind of almost like construction paper right you know and would be sent out mostly to her family like yeah. her extent Lori's got lots and lots more family than I have you know cousins and such and uh, and anyway um, I don't think we really do that much anymore but there's a very funny episode of Everybody Loves Raymond Ugh. where they're making fun of the Christmas letters they're getting yeah, yeah and marie is going like you know because it, it of course it puts it's like it's like facebook it puts everybody yes, in their, their yes. best light and she will say something like you know say you know listen to listen to so-and-so's letter here it says that her children everybody knows he's in jail and everybody knows that her, <laughs> everybody knows that her daughter is you know a drug addict it would be pretty funny to make the anti-christmas letter okay and just i mean in a way that it was obvious to people that you were you're being I funny and you could say you know will is you know will went over four you know from the line you know it you know, in their latest, you know, you know, my daughter, you know, she blew out her knees and, you know, all these things laying around on the couch. And the and animals just, under her care all died. And all the, the yes. animals died. And you, that would be funny because, okay. because I think now. almost everybody recognizes that often those letters, not always, but often those letters are, they, they, they're, they're an airbrush picture of why. Yeah. Um, and, Very true. And uh, sometimes they're sources of gossip because, you know, people are talking about so-and-so's letter and, you know, and all this kind of stuff and what's going on in their families and things of that nature. Yeah, I, I, yeah this is an interesting, this is an interesting ABS moment. I mean, it, I really want the Christmas cards to flow and yeah. I love seeing them and I, they have a special place in yeah. our home. I love them. But when they come through the door more and more, and of course by Christmas Day you may get ten that yeah, day. Yeah, we in have the mail. a ton on our refrigerator. Yeah, I or love at least them. We did. I don't but know if we did now. I, as a Southern woman, yeah, not just as a woman, but as a Southern woman, even a dear friend said to me recently, "You mean you didn't send out your wedding, your family wedding picture from Emmy's wedding two years ago? You didn't just use that as a Christmas card?" And I was like, "No, not even when it was built in." I feel deep shame because of my inability so to get pressure. it together. See, I see, feel pressure. I would say that as a man, there's very little that I feel pressure from other men about. Uh, I'd have to think about that, but I I uh, I can't say that there's a there's a peer pressure that I get from men that I'm expected to do X, Y, and Z. Uh, you might think of something and tell me I'm wrong, but I I will say that a lot of women. Um, yeah, I think they do live under a lot of that. So you feel peer pressure. That I feel you gotta peer pressure. Get, you got to get those that beautiful well, picture. Here's and- the deal. The deal is long about beginning of November, I'll get a random, hey, what's y'all's address? I'm getting my Christmas list together. And that's when I'm like, oh. 
Oh, yeah. I, I can't do this, but I know I'm going to get a beautiful Christmas card from them. And they're, it, it's wonderful. I can't do it. I can't. I, I wonder can't. if it's just Southern. I wonder I if I think it, it's a Southern thing. I don't know. I bet, I bet our fabulous audience would tweet at AB Shaver and let me know. I really want to know, am I alone in this? Or is it Southern? <laughs> is it universal? <laughs> is this one of those things where, you know, you feel pressure in a different area, yeah. but this is mine because my husband is good at it, and I, I want him to Women be. Women of a certain proud. social class, just, of which you are a part, do feel a pressure to do certain things. Yeah. They're they're in they're in order to keep up appearances. You have to. I failed. You have to do X. No appearance kept up here. Yeah, you, my house you, you is need clean. To be a part of that. My kids are fed. And my husband's happy. That's about all I can do. Well, that's plenty. That's all I can do. That's plenty. And you carry me. But so. You know what? I, I try uh, <laughs> because I have two very tall men, actually three, uh, counting my son who trumps everyone. Um, so you, but yeah. So thank you for that. In addition to keeping them all happy, you carry me through the show I'm just every saying, week. I just, I do so, my best. I do my there best. We but go. I, I really do want to know from people because please send me your Christmas cards. I, I'm happy for you to do that. I'm glad you're that responsible. I'm not, um, but maybe I will next year start the anti-Christmas letter because once you get to 50, like Mary Catherine Gallagher on Saturday Night Live, I can kick and maybe I can do it that way. So well, thank you, you for that. You know what made me think of the anti-Christmas card because I was already because I was already thinking about it because Lori had us pose for a Christmas photo. Of course she did. And because um, she's wonderful. And at some point, everyone is is getting up and because <laughs> nobody wants to do this. So everyone is moving, and she showed me the picture of everyone in the picture moving uh -huh. or going, you know, or whatever. <laughs> and uh, and I told Lori, that's the picture this that should go picture. out. This is the picture. It's the picture. The picture is hilarious. Yeah, because I enjoy It's the that. moment that everybody thinks the picture's done, and they're like, you know. Yeah. And, <laughs> this is why I like And I thought this would be She's funny. She's awesome. Well, thank you for obliging me yeah, uh, with that ABS moment. There are very many serious you know, I, ABS moments. We'll I want to take the pressure off of you. So thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, I feel better. Uh, and now, if you'll stick with us, we have some very interesting conversations ahead because we're going to talk about, well, I'm not even going to say what it is, but there's some weird encounters that you've been noticing that I think is a fascinating conversation. Yeah. Uh, we will talk about the Twitter files and then your excellent article that I couldn't help. We're, we're, could we chuckle with you at it? Because oh, some of the parts... <laughs> <laughs> so that you, this I'm show, look, this show is about <laughs> making you feel better about yourself. Yeah, and now absolutely. that I've just done that, number two on top of it, stick with us because not only will you feel better about your life after we get through the Twitter files and the top ten evilest people, but you'll just go, wow, this this was this was worth sticking around for. So don't go anywhere. Um, if you're driving, just you know, put hit the stop button, and then when you get back in your car, it'll start back up again, and we'll be right with you. So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. This is the Larry Alex Taunton Show. Larry is my favorite player. Welcome back. So pre-show, you brought up a topic that I find absolutely fascinating. It's something you've noticed lately. Um, what is it? Yeah, I, it has to do with dialogue with people that don't agree with you in the broader culture. Now, I've certainly seen this a lot on social media, but I'm experiencing it 
more and more in face-to-face -face interactions with individuals. Um, speaking at a university uh, not so long ago, uh, where I had this same experience, and it's a very different experience from decades past. And it's something that I've noticed in really about the last five years. And I've wondered if, and I'm, I'm not asserting that this is the answer. I'm simply saying, I wonder if mm -hmm. we have passed a certain kind of moral threshold in the culture mm -hmm. where there's a level of demonic activity mm. that isn't influencing a number. I mean, for instance, uh, used to, if you engage somebody who disagreed with you, for the most part, you could have a rational discussion with them. You Listen, it's there are always ir irrational people. There's always irreasonable, unreasonable people. And that doesn't matter if you're talking baseball or, you know, uh, your favorite restaurants or your political candidates or, or religion. But these days, it's much more common that at a very basic level, and the example I was using with you in our um, illustrious break room uh, was that... Which, by the way, with a silver coffee service? Yeah, wasn't that great? No, it wasn't was pretty that great. Nice? Yeah. Wasn't, that, wasn't that a very nice touch? Um, but where the conversation goes something like this, you, I accuse you of, um, of let's say, I, I told you not to bring biscuits. I wanted donuts. And you say, but Larry, if you'll turn around and look, you'll see that I brought donuts. And I refuse to look and continue mm. to accuse you of bringing biscuits. And you keep saying to me, but you know, if you will actually just turn and look. And, and I'm encountering this more and more where people accuse you of things that have no basis in reality and where you are saying to them, but if you'll read the article... For instance, on Twitter, just to use that as an example, or Facebook, you might, you know, link an article. You know, this is what we do in our our work, where you say, you know, here's an article about Ukraine, and then somebody, you know, is the next thing I know, they're telling me that I'm a Putin supporter, but they acknowledge they've not read the article. Hmm. I'm just a Putin supporter, and why am I a Putin supporter? Because they have identified that I'm a conservative, so that must mean I'm a Putin supporter. And you're saying, but if you read the article, you'll see that I'm anything but a Putin supporter. And then they might come back and say, yeah, well, what do you know about Ukraine? Well, if you'll read the article, you'll know that I've written a book about Ukraine, that I've been there many times. And um, I adopted a little girl from there. So I know, you know, I have quite a lot of interaction and experience in Ukraine. But I refuse to read the article. You know, so you're, I'm, I'm seeing this more and more. And I, I think I want to say to people that I, I think a, a mistake that a lot of Christians make is that they will pursue an individual who doesn't agree with them, wasting all kinds of time with them. Mm. Don't bother. Mm. Don't bother. You know, our Lord said, dust off your sandals and move on. If you're not received, move on. Uh, he also said the fields are white and ready for harvest, you know, meaning that there are for every person who would drain your time and tell you that, you know, argue with you. And, and, and by the way, the arguments also, as I say in the faith of Christopher Hitchens, with these types of people, 
when you address one objection, they just manufacture another. Mm -hmm. Like whack-a-mole. Yeah, it just, it just, they just keep, because at the end of the day, they're not going to agree with you. They don't want to agree with you. And they're not going to agree with you, you know, on the color of an orange. They're just not going to do that. Mm -hmm. But these days it takes on a more extreme expression. Mm. And, uh, it's something that I'm having a hard time wrapping my brain around because it's become so prevalent, so common on topics ranging from um, politics, religion, sports. You know, and it, it could be almost anything these days. And they they try to shut you down. Mm. I'm not going to engage with you, and I'm going to do my best to shut you down. And you see the left, what they what they're accustomed to doing until Elon, Elon Musk took over over Twitter, is they're so used to being able to, uh, you know, on, on a tweet, you can, there, there's those little ellipses on the top right, and you can click on those, it'll say report tweet. And it used to, they could push that and get your tweet removed or you banned or suspended or something like that. Right now, for how long this will be the case, I don't know, um, they have less opportunity to do that. But they're used to being able to shut you down rather than, uh, you know, I, I don't know that I've ever reported a tweet unless I saw something that I thought was potentially illegal. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and in other words, if somebody, you know, is saying things that I thought were fascist or racist or, you know, really evil, my thought was, well, you're evil, but you have the, the right to say these mm -hmm. things. I just, I don't agree with you. But that's not how they think. They think that I shouldn't have to hear you. You shouldn't be allowed to, to say what you want to say. And if I don't like what you're saying, then I should have the right to prevent you from saying mm -hmm. it at all. So this is a, I think this is a, a, not a product of personality so much anymore. I think this is a spiritual thing mm -hmm. that we're, that we're seeing. And I I would guess, I'd be interested in hearing from viewers, from listeners on this topic, but I think this is a real thing. Do you see this? Do you know what I'm talking about? I know about? exactly what you're talking sense? about. It makes perfect sense. And I think it's also transferable even into interpersonal relationships, just off the social media, whatever the topic is. And and I think something that struck out, you know, stuck out to me as I'm listening to you talk about this is also as believers to pray for wisdom to know when you can walk away That's from right. that conversation. Because I think so often people want to convince somebody of their argument or of their idea that it has worth and merit. Yeah. And in Christ, we already have worth and merit, so you don't have to convince somebody. Yeah. Just put it out there. And if they don't accept it, like you said very well, don't waste your time. Yeah. But there is blindness, and it is an obstinate blindness. And I think it's how you know that's a it good is way to put it. a spiritual blindness because you just think it's, what is it? And the New Testament talks about a veil that's gone over their eyes mm -hmm. that they cannot see, they don't understand. And it's a little frightening because you think, have we gotten this far? Not only do you see the progression of people not knowing how to think logically through an issue, not only do they want to not think, they don't want to be bothered to think. Yeah, and, and so they're not even going to turn around to see that what you're saying is true. Absolutely, because they have already determined that they're going to disagree with you no matter what. Yes. And uh, let's just take Robert Epstein, for example, mm -hmm. who we had on the show discussing how Google rigs elections. Now, um, Robert Epstein, to quote him, he says, I haven't a conservative bone in my body. Voted for the Clintons voted for um, Joe Biden. Mm -hmm. 
I really like talking with Robert because he's not a Christian. He's a guy that I engage. Uh, we can go back and forth and uh, and text conversations, phone conversations, where we're disagreeing. But every now and then, you know, I can feel Bob um, going. You know, Larry's just punched a hole in my argument, and I have to accept that that's true. I can feel the same thing. Where I'm going, you know, he just made a really good point, mm-hmm. and I'm wrong. He, I was wrong about what I said, mm-hmm. and uh, and it's been useful to me because that's iron sharpening iron. Yes. I I really value those conversa- those conversations, those relationships. Those now almost don't exist, and so you're dealing with individuals, and they almost all seem to be possessed of the spirit of accusation. Yes, uh, they're going to just accuse and accuse and accuse. And as I say, when I was speaking at a uni- at a university uh, not too long ago, the attempt was to shut me mm-hmm. down. Rather than listen and go, well, during the q and I'm going to expose his arguments right. as false. Right. It was, I- I'm going to try to prevent you from speaking. Yes. A, a, a yes. faculty member standing up and saying, you know, this lecture is over. You're not allowed to say, you know what I'd said? I'd said that abortion was evil. I'd said that abortion was evil, and, and he went apoplectic. Mm. And I was, you know, I'm I'm used to this kind of thing. I, I'm like, well, no, you're not going to shut me down like that. That's not going to happen. Um, but if I'm wrong in something I'm saying, I'm prepared for you. I, I often take the view that Luther took, you know, at the Diet of Worms, here I stand, I can do no other. You know, meaning this is what I've written, this is what I say. If I'm wrong, um, you know, demonstrate it to me by sound scriptural reasoning or or sound argument. Luther would end his Luther would end a number of his articles, you know, by saying that. If I'm if I'm wrong. I, I'm, I'm prepared to accept that I'm wrong if you can demonstrate that I'm wrong. Uh, but of course, they always just came back with accusations. Yes. They just called him names. And he would say, well, you know, that's not actually a sound argument. So my opinion hasn't changed as a result of that. But I just want to point this out because I'm sure that people are listening or watching who have experienced this. Mm-hmm. And I would say, um, I think there's something very spiritual that is going on here. Uh, it is like a veil that is that has come over them that they can't see, won't see, refuse to see, and where they just feel the need to shut you down. And I would say, don't bother with people like that. Just just move on. Yeah. Um, and and on social media, you know, I have I have friends who are, you know, who are who are public figures in in this space as uh, as I am, and they just block them. They just block them. Yeah, I think that's wise. Yeah. I really do. I I think probably 10 years ago, I would have thought, no, let's keep the conversation going. No, you don't have to do that. Um, spend time with people that you can engage with. Yeah. Because I think we worship at the altar of being right instead yeah. of having the humility to say, I was wrong. Yep. Instruct me. Hard thing to I'd say. like to learn. It's so hard to say you're wrong. But there's no sin in being in being. Tom Brady, wrong. I was wrong in saying you were overrated. I apologize. <laughs> so you know, I, I think that's a fantastic conversation. But I think people will—they're probably nodding their head right now because a lot of people are noticing the same yep. thing, which is a perfect segue. Well, can, let me say this very quickly. Oh, yes. I'm sorry. I meant no, to. No, no. I meant to mention this. If you have not read Dostoevsky, He's never been more relevant than he is right now. And uh, Fedor Dostoevsky, the great Russian novelist, arguably the greatest novelist of all time, along with Tolstoy. And um, Dostoevsky 
I'm mindful of this conversation. I'm mindful of this book because of this. I, I had had this experience recently with someone and and I was thinking about this book because Dostoevsky was himself an, an atheist and a socialist. He would say that they're they're just opposite sides of the same coin. They're the same thing. He's the one who taught me that. And uh, Dostoevsky, because he was one of them, um, and uh, in I say was because Dostoevsky, in addition to being dead, uh, Dostoevsky uh, converted to Christianity. Mm-hmm. And when he did, he devoted himself to the demolition of those twin philosophies, atheism and socialism. He attacked them in a big way, but he wrote this book, which is called... This is one translation. It's probably the less popular translated title, Demons. But the more common uh, translation is The Possessed. Okay. And he likened likened, um, advocates of atheism and socialism to people who were demon-possessed. Because Mm. he was saying you couldn't reason with them. You couldn't. You couldn't there. You couldn't rationalize with them at all. They were about shutting you down. They're they're dogmatic. Um, they are uh, ideologues. They think think ideas matter more than people, and they're extremely dangerous because of this. And I, anyway, I was thinking about this because of you know I just had this experience, and I was I was thinking about the the spiritual aspect of this, and I thought. I know who I'm going to go lean on in this because he's more knowledgeable of this. He had a lifetime experience with it, and it's Dostoevsky. I need to go back to Dostoevsky, who says these people are like this. There's a spiritual battle going on, and they become... And see, part of the the debate over the title, by the way, is um, some one translator says that it's that Dostoevsky means the possessing agent, the the, mm. the, 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 the demons. Mm. And other translators say, eh, Dostoevsky means the people who are possessed by the possessing agent. Hence the reason the possessed or demons uh, in, in the titles, regardless that subtle distinction. Dostoevsky's point was these people are like this. They take on... Um, a fairly common characteristic that you begin seeing in them all. And I thought, that's what I'm seeing. Almost all of these conversations are the same. Mm-hmm. It's not one. It's it's the people who don't even know each other behaving the same way. Yeah, that's eerie. And where you're going, this feels to me like there's some kind of demonic activity. And then there'd be people who listen to this and go, oh, you're a crackpot. You know, listen, I believe the devil is, like C.S. Lewis, like many of the... Uh, the, the great thinkers of all time, the spiritual realm I take to be very real. Um, and uh, whether you believe or not, believe in the devil or not, I promise you he believes in you. And um, you're, you're, you're on a collision course uh, to meet him um, if, you are, uh, if you're not careful. So I take this very seriously. But anyway, you can now move on from that. But I did want to mention that book. I didn't write this will, book, by the way. I wish I did, really, but I didn't write this book. I'm going to buy that book. I must warn you, though. It is fairly thick. We should do a. Uh, it's good Christmas holidays reading. It's, it's a good Christmas. Um, if you're not already in a book club, and somebody pages. wants to encourage me along, I'm going to read the. I'm literally ordering it this afternoon. Well, I'm you should. Read it. I am. Um, all right, which is kind of the perfect segue 
714 pages. Well, that is, is that all? No big deal. And I'm sure you could probably read it in Russian if you wanted to, but you're not gonna, because you're not gonna show off that much. Okay, so here's the segue. Because this is a perfect conversation on the social media, the blindness that we're seeing. Do you know when it comes to the Twitter and Elon (laughs) Musk releasing the Twitter files or Matt Taibbi, I have some interesting statistics. All right. Are you ready for this? I can't wait to hear them. Okay. Network, and this is a tweet from, well, I don't know if I can say the guy's name, but it's hilarious. Do you follow Cat Turd? He's hilarious. Yes. Okay. uh, Well, no, I don't, but I... I end up seeing it anyway because it gets tweeted so it's much. So it's so great by stuff. By people that I am following, so I end up seeing great it. Great stuff. Yeah. All right. So do you know how much network news coverage of new information on the Hunter Biden laptop story has been out there on ABC, <laughs> CBS, and NBC? How much time have they spent this week I'm gonna covering it? I'm going to guess that it's extremely low. I'll say five minutes. You ready for this? Okay. Each news outlet. Zero seconds. No kidding. All three. Zero. This is from December 4th is when I did a screen grab. Um, Zero. Wow. That is it. But what do you make of all of the Twitter files? Well, uh, to make our audience aware, just in case you don't know um, what we're talking about here, uh, Elon Musk, of course, purchased Twitter for, I think, $44 billion. And he promised that he was going to uh, make a lot of changes. He was going to restore free speech on the platform. And the guy has been doing it. Now, I want to be clear that uh, my hope is not in Elon Musk. Elon Musk is not a Christian. In fact, he is an atheist. And that makes me somewhat nervous because... He adheres in a very broad sense to a Judeo-Christian worldview. He clearly loves America. Tweeted the other day how much he loves the Constitution. I think he's sincere when he says that. But he has no rational basis for his his worldview because as an atheist, I mean, it's just anything goes. Uh, So I would say people need to pray for him in regards to that. But one of the things that he's done is it's become clear he hasn't purchased so much a company, but as... As I saw one person say, he's purchased a crime scene, hmm. and he's come in there, well and he is he is beginning to to uncover all the skeletons in the Twitter closet, the things that they didn't want us to know that that we did know, we knew they were doing, we knew that they were suppressing free speech, um, but we didn't know the degree to which they were colluding with the government. Now, I want to be clear on on this point. As a private company, they have the right to boot anybody off their platform they want. Free speech isn't guaranteed on Twitter if Twitter doesn't want to give you that. However, what is against the law is them colluding with government to say, shut down Amy Beth Shaver. And somebody at Twitter says, yeah, that's handled. So the... The government, various government agencies, governors, secretary of state, you name it, um, the White House, they were making lists of tweets they wanted removed and accounts they wanted suspended. And they would send in these lists and people at Twitter would say, handled, we've done that, gotten rid of that. And so as, as Musk has pointed out, 
in theory, both sides, conservatives and, uh, and liberals or radical left, really, uh, or Democrats and Republicans, if you like, both had access to Twitter to do this. But the fact is, Twitter is, is a radical leftist platform, and they were only doing it um, for the radical left. So this is what was happening. So Musk has come in. He's uncovered all of these, well, I, probably not all of them, probably only a tiny fraction of them, but emails and so on that this stuff was going on. Now, to me, I'm kind of thinking how in the world, and maybe Matt uh, off air can explain this to us, but I don't understand. You know, if you're Twitter and you know Musk is coming in and you've had months to prepare for this, why don't you burn those servers to the ground? Mm -hmm. I mean, how is it that Musk is able to come in and find this stuff, which to me is a lot? I would think they would have, have carefully, you know, um, Remove fingerprints right, right. of all of their criminal Bleach activity. Yes, you would think they would have gone through and and done that. But okay, be that as it may, it doesn't appear that they did. At least not with all of it. So Musk began releasing what became known as has become known as the Twitter files, and um, and he did this by tweeting it out. He uh, he had one of uh, one of the people there at at, at Twitter uh, begin dropping this. I think it was on Friday night. Uh, of last week, dropping these in a series of tweets. Now, what has come out since then is that James Baker, not the James Baker of you know of yes. the, the Reagan and both Bush administrations, but a guy named James Baker, who was uh, um, a counsel for the FBI, he had been involved in the Hunter Biden laptop story and seeing that that was suppressed, seeing that that story didn't get out um, on, on, uh, on social media. And that was a story that, that had been broken by the New York Post. Uh, the New York Post had, had, had put out the story that Hunter Biden's laptop, which he had taken into a, a store to have repaired, the guy who's working on it discovers all of this criminal activity on this laptop. He hands it over uh, to members of government and um, and it eventually ends up with the New York Post. They are able to demonstrate on the laptop that the Biden family, the Biden crime family, has been selling, peddling influence, government influence. So, um, so that Biden himself, in order to enrich, that is to say Joe Biden, in order to enrich the Biden family was selling his influence through his son to the Chinese and various other mm -hmm. parties. Hey, you want me to, to, to make a big decision on your behavior? You know, you know what to do. You put money into the, to the Biden coffers. Well, of course, immediately the left who controls big tech went out to suppress this. And as you've noted, mm -hmm. you know, mainstream media, legacy media didn't really cover this at all. So I, I, um, Musk said, look, I'm going to get the story out there. I'm going to put it out there. So he has been doing this. But then he discovered that he was still employing at Twitter James Baker, yeah, which is incredible. So he, is, he fired him because even as they were releasing the story, James Baker was trying to suppress the story. And I don't know that this has come out yet. Maybe it has. Maybe somebody's noticed this. But they numbered the tweets. Yes, you know when they when they when this dropped on Friday mm -hmm. and Musk and his team were putting the story out. I was following it live, so it would say tweet one, 
tweet to. And then you got to like tweet 11, and then it jumped from 11 to 16 mm-hmm. or 15. There were all these tweets in the middle. And oh, everybody's that's a good going, point. Where did these other ones go? Which makes me wonder if he had a hand. And I thought either they've lost count of their own tweets or some other shenanigans was going on there because there were about four or five tweets that just, mm-hmm. for whatever weren't reason, they weren't, they weren't there. But this is the kind of stuff that's been going on at Twitter. And it's, it's astonishing to me. I mean, what's your take? I think it is a win for free speech. I think it has become delightful to be on Twitter. I think that it is amazing that, like you said, the thing that really is like a bright, shining, um, lit up sign is the arrogance of the people who ran Twitter before that they wouldn't even bother to cover their tracks. Yeah. They, I think they secretly, even though Musk walked in with the kitchen sink the first yeah. day he was there, um, I think they still thought he's one of us. Like, it's going to be okay. Like, it's Elon, but he'll understand. Or that he can't run it without you know, I, I really think there's this, this uh, arrogance that run, ran through that place. So I'm, I'm thankful that it's gone. I'm thankful that Baker is gone. I will be interested to see, did they go back and put those four tweets in or five tweets in? I haven't, I haven't seen, them. seen them. I haven't seen them. Now, maybe, maybe. Uh, do you know anything about this? Have you heard about those he knows additional so many tweets? Things. He's we may so go techie. to We may go to break and, uh, and, okay. and find out um, what he knows on this, but I haven't, I haven't seen that. But yeah, this is a very real thing. And, and I want to I say something else. We'll go to break. When we come back, I want to to say something about how Twitter has changed. Again, for how long, I don't know. But there seems to be a window of opportunity here uh, for the advancement of ideas that aren't on the extreme left, the the advancement of the gospel, the advancement of a of a sane and rational worldview. So And you know what? I'll save my last thought for that. So stick around. We will be right back. The opinions expressed here do not reflect those of Democrats, atheists, Muslim radicals, environmentalists, globalists, socialists, the United Nations, the World Economic Forum, soccer fans, or men who eat quiche. But they should. Welcome back. Okay, so the new Twitter. Well, this is interesting. Years ago when we did the Around the World in 80 Days trip, the Around the World in More Than 80 Days trip, which is that book, that's uh, that's sitting right there. <clears throat> we had allotted in the budget a certain sum of money to promote on Twitter. So we had a we had an advertising team, you know, a a consultant group, you know, that was telling us, you know, here are the ways that you can get this out there. And they said, you know, do it do it on on Twitter. So we allotted a certain sum of money to to boost, as they call it, to boost tweets mm-hmm. that were about the trip. Now the reason we were doing this, of course, is because. The trip is a way of just sort of capturing people's attention through adventure, through the interest of uh, of a travel log, but you're smuggling the gospel in, you know, as you uh, as you go. So this is what we were doing. Well, we were seeing zero boost from that, you know. So what we discovered that Twitter was doing was that. To do Twitter ads, they they work something like this. This isn't exactly right, but it goes something like this. It's all done online. Like you don't call somebody and do it. You do it online and you say, um, I want to boost this tweet or, you know, this topic 
and it'll say, what age range do you want to reach? Male, female, what countries? It's um, oddly specific. It's very, it's, you're choosing the demographic mm -hmm. that you want to put this in front of. And, um, and then you say, uh, there's a little sliding scale and you say, I want to spend $25 a day or $1,000 a day or whatever you want to do. And then you, the number of days that you do it. And then I don't know exactly how Twitter does this, but they, they put that ad into people's streams that fit that demographic for the length of time that you, you say you, you want to do it. They don't do it for everybody because you know, you, that would cost you big, big money. But you know, if you're doing 25, let's say $25 a day, they maybe put it in front of an additional thousand people a day mm -hmm. or something like that. So what we noticed was we were getting zero boost from this. And what we realized Twitter was doing because of the negative responses we were getting to the ads was that Twitter was deliberately putting us, they had identified us as conservative, as Christian, and they were deliberately putting us into a radical leftist stream. So you would get mauled. Now, I don't mind being in a radical leftist dream, except that the tweets weren't written for that. You, you see? Right. You're, you're, when, when I go into that stream, I'm, I'm, I'm more careful in what I say. I'm not immediately signaling that I'm a conservative or I'm a, I'm a Christian in order to, mm -hmm. you know, to try to get, get them in to, to, to listen to what you have to say. But that's not what you're doing when you're talking to a home crowd, right? You speak. Jesus spoke very differently to the disciples than he did when he yes. was speaking to the broader culture. So Twitter was putting us in front of a, and I'm sure they were laughing behind their hand while they're doing it because here you are saying something about the importance of the Christian faith, and they're putting you in front of, let's say, an atheist stream, so that they know those people are going to chew you up and spit you out. So you saw no boost. Also. Um, and, and, and we, we saw this by the way, more than once. And we were just like, we're not spending any money on this platform. And they would frequently, of course, that's if they accepted your ad, your ads had to be reviewed and they would often reject your ad as being political or religious or offensive or whatever. For instance, we tried to promote one, an article I'd written for USA Today that USA Today titled, not me. Christianity and Islam are not comparable. That was a, a piece that had gone viral in 2015. I mm -hmm. wrote it after Charlie Hebdo. Mm -hmm. uh, it I resulted in a load of you know interviews, resulted in Al Jazeera flying me to New York to do um, a debate um, on it. So it, this was out in the broader culture, but Twitter wouldn't promote it. They said, you know, that's offensive. So we were trying to engage people on the topic. They wouldn't allow it. Now, to test the new Twitter... I decided to take a little bit of money and to promote a, a, a few borderline, you know, things the old Twitter would say are offensive. And almost everything we do is offensive by their definition. Um, I decided to boost a couple of tweets to see, has Twitter really changed? Mm -hmm. Has anything really happened here? And those tweets have gone bonkers so that now... Um, you know, the series that I wrote on Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum, at the moment of my speaking, it has, I don't know, 12,000 likes, has more than a million impressions. And what Twitter does, old Twitter and new Twitter, but there's a big difference, is the old Twitter, when you put something out there like that, even if it did get out there, um, 
And I, I don't mean in an ad. I just mean you you put a tweet, you know, that mm-hmm. says, you know, here's a talk on the importance of uh, of 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 marriage between a man and a woman. Somebody could report that, and you would immediately get an uh, you know an automated you know email and uh, a little notification in your tweet line that would say your tweet. There's we've received a complaint about your tweet and is under review. And they would almost always rule against you. They would almost always rule against the conservative so that your tweet or your ad was removed. You were no longer allowed to do it. Um, for instance, my article, this wasn't a, a boosted ad, my article on, it's funny I mention it, my article on Islam and Christianity, the Indian government two years ago, so that hit five years after the article came mm-hmm. out, but the article was still going. The Indian government lodged a complaint with Twitter about the article, and I received the notification um, from Twitter, and Twitter said, your tweet has been removed Hmm. because we've reviewed it and it's offensive. Now what is happening is interesting, is almost every day I am getting notifications from Twitter that there's a complaint about my ads that are promoting a variety of things. One, uh, an article um, that I've written that was a very popular piece I wrote a couple of years ago on Karl Marx and uh, and Charles Spurgeon. And um, another one being uh, an article that I've written on, uh, pardon me for one second. Excuse me, occasionally I, you know, people will know that I, I had a, a very serious accident some years ago and um, and uh, just almost everything. I, if you were to get, you know, when you buy a car, used car, you get the, you can get what's called a Carfax, right. which shows you everything that's wrong with it. You know, if you got the Carfax on Larry Don, it would tell you the chassis is warped. <laughs> <laughs> it would tell you a lot of a lot of things. But every now and then, and it's very in, infrequent, I get a, um, a, a painful loud ringing in my ears and it only happens for a few seconds you know uh five ten seconds it gets very loud and then it slowly subsides and just in the minute uh, in, in the middle of that discussion there um that happened to me right there's a very rare thing to happen only just a few times a year um but it happened there so i i do apologize for that matt will have to edit that out because i'm not going to um to restate all of that but anyway now people can complain about your ads mm-hmm. just as they could before, except that almost in every instance now, Twitter Twitter will send me a notification, your ad, your tweet is under review, and then maybe an hour or two, sometimes maybe as long as maybe six or eight hours later, they will say, we've reviewed your podcast or we've reviewed your tweet. You're good to go. <laughs> you know, wow, so, yeah. So they're saying there's nothing wrong with it. We think it's, we think it's fine. And see... Uh, well, I had promoted a podcast that we had done that was, I'm not, I'm not sure if it was the discussion with, um, with Anna Mazzoni, uh, or if it was, it was someone else. It wasn't the, uh, um, the really controversial one, you know, Robert Epstein on, on Google's election rigging. It was something else. And so that one was the one that was down the longest mm-hmm. because I'm going to guess they, 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 they didn't just have to review the, the verbiage, mm-hmm. but they had mm-hmm. to actually listened to something and they came back and said, you're fine. <laughs> you're good to go. Wow. And so they, so they let it go. So that has been fascinating to observe the difference in Twitter 
before and now mm-hmm. because now you're seeing that your your followings are growing, your your message is getting out, and and so the people understand why this is important. The Romans built a network of roads throughout the empire. And they did uh, not really so much to facilitate commerce. They did it so that they could move their legions very rapidly from one end of the empire to the other to suppress rebellions or conquest or whatever the case may be. And some of those roads are still in use. There is, it was a remarkable Eisenhower interstate system mm-hmm. you know, of the ancient world. Right. But there were unintended consequences of that. And one of them was, of course, the, the, the uh, facilitation of commerce but also the facilitation of the gospel. Mm, amen. The gospel was able to spread extremely rapidly to all corners of the empire because missionaries could get from one end to the other, not by modern standards, but by ancient standards quite rapidly. Well, the today's Roman road um, is social media. Mm. And social media has not really been available to Christians uh, or conservatives in a in a in a big way, because your voice was turned down. Mm. They, uh, to quote Musk, we're removing our thumb from the scale. Mm-hmm. I love that imagery. We're removing the thumb from the scale to allow for a level playing field. And that is what is happening. Now, how long that window will remain open, I have no idea. And I also want to say, we were talking about admitting you're wrong. Well, apparently I have to admit I'm wrong because Matt, the producer, tells me that I'm wrong in saying Musk is a uh, uh, is an atheist. He insists that he is an agnostic. Uh, my, w- my impression, why I think that, is because I've seen a couple of interviews with him and read tweets where his discussion of of uh, of evolution and Darwinism and such has kind of led me to the to the view that he was an atheist, but uh, I stand corrected. Apparently, he is uh, he is an agnostic. Which, to quote a number of atheists I know, are a- agnostics are atheists who are just too cowardly to admit that they're atheists. <laughs> uh, they just say, "Well, I don't know," um, and I don't know what to say on that. But anyway, these are some real things that we're seeing. That are that are, that are changing on this platform and have the power, the potential to change the culture. They really do. And and one other thing before we go and and talk about the ten evilest people of all time. That's right. Bef- so that we all will feel better about ourselves, <laughs> is that it also exposed what actual journalism looks like. Yeah, it does. It does. And it? I don't know how way. long that is going to last either. But it is inspiring Matt Taibbi, Barry Weiss, Elon for letting that out. But those two in particular, and I don't know if Barry's stuff has come out yet, but I follow both of them. I don't think so. Um, You know, she very bravely told the truth a few years ago during COVID, and I appreciate that. Um, But this is what it's supposed to look like for everybody coming out of journalism school right now, thinking that you're supposed to be a mouthpiece for the Democratic Party or, you know, uh, liberal Republicans, whatever. No, this is what journalism looks like. It means telling the truth and being brave, come what may, period. That's it. Yeah, and, and even in those cases, the two that you mentioned, they're both liberal. They're liberal. They're very liberal. Yep. And I would disagree with them uh, um, on quite a few things. I'm grateful for their integrity yes. here in, uh, in, in doing Me this. Me too. Listen, real, real journalism isn't... isn't promoting um, a worldview, it's 
it's just simply reporting. It's telling the truth about a, a given thing. Mm-hmm. And and see what you're seeing many journalists do these days is they begin with a conclusion. You know, a conclusion should be the conclusion, <laughs> right? Um, and it's determined by your evidence, but that's not what they do. They begin with a conclusion and then they work backward from the conclusion and discard all evidence that contradicts the conclusion. So that it's like saying, um, well, I'm going to take the view that George Washington was a cross-dresser and that's my conclusion. And I'm going to find every scurrilous thing that I could find that was ever said about George Washington. And I'm going to use that when the overwhelming evidence suggests he wasn't a cross-dresser. Right. <laughs> but that's that's the way we see these things being done these days. And, uh, and it's upsetting. And that's a good discussion to lead us into the evilest people of all time. All time. <laughs> of all time. Okay, so... Producer Matt, I'm looking at you. Um, would you like for us to take a break or yes? Okay, so we'll take a break. And then if you, I, I, I cannot wait to talk about this list. Okay, I love top 10 list. This is a good one. So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. This is the Larry Alex Taunton Show. All right, welcome back. The top 10 evilest list of all time. Or AKA feel better about yourself. Okay, so number 10 is the world's worst. Before you answer this, I want people to think who they think this would be the world's worst political dynasty. Well, let's first set this up just a bit. Okay. Pardon me for just right. a second. No, you, you know what, by the way, some of the biggest pushback I got on this article, I, I published this in the American Spectator. In the American, excuse me, this is the biscuits that you brought today. They're coming back. Biscuits are delicious. Um, the uh, is it's titled the the evilest people of all time, and there's so many people are saying it should be most, most evil. evil, not evilest, but evilest is it's it's a little antiquated, but is actually it's a real word, but it's correct. Yeah. And uh, anyway, but you would think that people would be more. You know, engaged in the list, but people love to correct you. I there know are always that. those people who love I to correct you. you. And it's really annoying in any circumstance, but it's especially annoying when they're wrong. But <laughs> yes, political dynasty, I put it number 10, the three Kims. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh the the Kims who have dominated Korea for gosh, um, well over uh half a century. We're now moving, you know, towards, um, you know, seventy-five years, and the uh, the the Kims, in terms of body count, you when you're talking about a list like this, how do you determine who the evilest mm-hmm. people are of all time? Well, of course, it's a very subjective list. There are a lot of wonderful candidates <laughs> that you could put on this list, um, but you you know you have to narrow it to ten. And I'm also trying to educate people just a little bit by not choosing necessarily the people that immediately come, you know, to someone's, to someone's mind. And are you doing it strictly in terms of body count? Uh, well, no, uh, because then it would have to be in modern times. It would all have to be in modern times because the machinery for killing, you know, millions of people exists now and it didn't exist before. So my list is a little bit of a mix. And it also includes a few people who killed no one. They were individuals 
whose influence was incredibly pernicious. So yes, at number 10, I list the three Kims because the Kims have been great persecutors mm. of freedom, of a free people, of Christians, the heinous things that they have done there. Uh, there's been no liberalizing in North Korea. Um, the dishonesty, the hatred of humanity, the naked expression of power, uh, the the uh, internment camps, uh, the uh, torturing of, of Christians, things that I won't even say here that have been done to Christians in that country. And then, of course, initiating the Korean War, which killed millions of people. So, yes, I have the three Kims. Grandfather, son, and grandson. We're now down to Kim Jong-un um, as... Uh, the most evil political dynasty of all time. So yes, I put them in. They come in at number ten on the list. All right, number nine. And I and I won't. You have to tell I, me because I don't have a list in I, front I of me. I don't have the list. <laughs> and let me say this right here: two things. Let me back up. Um, I, I will let people download this article for themselves. So I'm not going to give all of them away. I would like to say though that number one, you want to stick around for because that was that was really good. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> I don't even know how to say his Grozny. name. Ivan Grozny. Ivan Grozny. Who's Ivan? Ivan Grozny. Grozny is usually translated as the terrible. Ivan the terrible the, yes. is the way he's known yes. in the West. He was an incredibly evil individual. And, um, you know, his reign is interesting. He was born in 1530. He died in 1584. He reigned from 1533, for, so from the time that he was a three-year-old. But he really took power in 1547. So his reign is kind of divided between 1533, 47, 47 to um, 60 in 1684. And uh, and it's because, you know, in his early reign, it's a it's a period of minority. He's he has a regent. You know, other people are 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 ruling on his behalf. He takes power and becomes czar, declares himself czar of all the Russias in 1547. But things turn really nasty after 1560, and a lot of historians attribute that to the death of his wife, Anastasia, uh, whom he supposedly uh, greatly loved. Now, he had a number of wives after her, but many think that that's, that's what kind of broke him, <laughs> is that after that is when things turn really, really bloody. In 1570, he surrounded the city of Novgorod in a, in a six-weeks orgy of violence with his uh, Oprich Nina, which is Russia's first political police force. Think a horseback riding, dog head wearing KGB. Uh, they surrounded that city and they annihilated it. Just daily dragging people out of houses and torturing them. This was the kind of stuff that, uh, that, that he did. Um, he was an extremely uh, evil, vicious, Human being, and I, you know, my own theory about about him and figures like him is I do think that sometimes there are individuals like Nero, for instance, that that have a predisposition. One could say that they're crazy, but probably not. I mean, the human heart is deceitful and wicked, you know, above all things. Um, who can know it? Uh, Jeremiah seventeen nine. Um, we we have it in us to do uh, incredibly wicked things. And as the uh, the maxim goes, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And I, I think that there are a few individuals that there were people who were alive that served to restrain them. And it, it, meaning, if you think about it, 
All of us have people in our lives, or at least most of us do, that we want to please. You know, it might be your mother, it might be your husband, it might be your wife, it might be your children, it might be people you don't want, just people you don't want to disappoint. Um, I think that, you know, in the case of Nero with the with the death of, of Seneca, whom he killed, mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, there were no longer any restraints on his life. Everybody was dead that that cared for him or for who might serve to say, hey, maybe you shouldn't do that. Mm-hmm. Once those people are removed, if you think about it, the tendency for anyone to, to go into a direction that says, well, I don't care what anybody thinks, uh, is uh, is there and dangerous. And anyway, in the case of, uh, of Yvonne Grozny, if they're right, uh, Ivan the Terrible, if they're right, the death of his wife, Anastasia, all bets were off. And he used his power in a you know in in a in a, a very very sinister way. Uh, and how many people did he kill? Tens of thousands, probably. But this is a guy that if he had had access to Zyklon B, if he had had uh, guillotines, if he had had uh, machine guns, he'd have killed millions. There's no question. Mm. He just didn't, he just didn't have the the modern means to do it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, wow. Moving along here. Uh, don't <laughs> you even... should already be feeling better about yourself. <laughs> I, I just, you know, there's that. Um, how about how about number five? Do you remember who you put as number five? I don't remember who I have as number five. How about the first two guesses don't count? How about Stalin? Okay, Joseph Stalin. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people would think he deserves to be at number one on our list, but that's just because they don't know, um, you know, um, how many more evil people there are in uh, in life. Yes, Joseph Stalin died March 53, um, shaking his fist, said witnesses, you know, at the heavens. Mm-hmm. Um, Joseph Stalin, incredibly evil man who hated everybody. Mm-hmm. I mean, everybody. And uh, Stalin, his family, his children, um, his wife, uh, the God that that he rejected, uh, his parents, uh, almost everyone in his his inner circle, you name it, uh, he hated them all and he was suspicious of them all. Killed, according to Robert Conquest of the Hoover Institute, killed uh, as many as 30 million people in uh, in what has been called the Great Terror. So, yes, Joseph Stalin, incredibly wicked individual. Okay, how about this? Um, because there's so much going on with this country right now. Number four, rightly so, Mao. Chairman Mao has somehow managed to escape the the label he deserves in history, meaning most of the time when people think of the most evil individual, they go, Hitler. Mm-hmm. It's always Hitler. It's always Hitler. And in uh, Hitler, not to lessen um, his, his evil, he deserves to be way up there. But if we're going to go in terms of body count, Mao made Hitler and Stalin look like mm-hmm. schoolboys. Mm-hmm. Mao killed as many as 70 million of his own people. 70 million of his own people. And by the way, this brings us back to, to Elon Musk, because there is a theory among many conservatives that Elon Musk is what uh, is called, called controlled opposition. Controlled opposition being the idea that Musk is pretending to be a friend to conservatives in order to out conservatives so that they might be readily identified in, uh, in when the time comes rounded up. And that's because Mao did something similar. Mao, on more than one occasion, 
uh, appeared to um, be losing powers, appeared to be weakening, and there were voices that appeared to be opposition against Mao. And, uh, and all of a sudden, um, those who are Mao's opponents began to rear their head and rally to the cause of this other individual only for it to be revealed that that individual is working on behalf of Mao, that the whole thing was a, a national setup in order to out who his opponents really were and cut off all their heads, which is what they did. I don't buy the Elon Musk is controlled opposition argument because in the United States, I don't think people are underground with their political views. I mean, mm-hmm. um, in China, they were uh, under Mao for good reason. And hence, people only came out and, and outed themselves when they thought it was safe to do so, when they thought that Mao was losing power. In the United States, we're not in that circumstance. So people are you know, are, are spouting their views all over social media, you know, all day, every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't buy into that theory. But anyway, Chairman Mao is uh, unquestionably one of the most evil individuals of all time. Guys, almost all these people, by the way, I, I don't like to say this, but in this case, I will. I'm pretty sure they're all in hell. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, that- um, I'm, I'm not going to say sure. anything. I'm just, yes, I would suggest to you that. I don't that, know of any deathbed conversions in the case of I didn't of hear of anything. Uh, all right, two questions. Number one is I'm going to hold on number three because 100% was very, very glad that you included this person on the list. Um, but for those people that are listening right now thinking, hmm, I am very interested in history. <clears throat> and Larry, we know that you're a professor. Um, do you have great books on history that you recommend if somebody says, I'm looking for a primer or I'm looking for something, um, maybe, mm. you know, to give somebody, is that something Depends you want to... What, what, I mean, like, are we like, just Is there about a like, world, okay, let's talk about world history. Um, do you have one or two that you like, or <laughs> do you have specific historians that you follow and you read everything that they write, you know? Something like that. Boy, I, I need time, you know, almost to think about this before I say this. Yes, there are historians that I trust on different okay. topics. Okay. That uh, almost none of them modern, by, by the way. But there are certain historians that when they're, they're, they're weighing in on a topic, I go, I want to go see what he has to say on that. Paul Johnson. Okay, yes. I love Paul Johnson. Paul Johnson, I believe, is still alive. He's in his 90s. And... Um, Paul Johnson is, uh, um, he's written, uh, you know, very readable books on, uh, on topics ranging from the history of Christianity to a, a little uh, monograph on, uh, on Winston Churchill. Um, he has, you know, wrote a very popular book with conservatives called Intellectuals, um, maybe, I don't know, 20 years ago. But Paul Johnson is somebody that I think very highly of. Um, although he was, you know, he was trained as a Jesuit, became an atheist, and I'm told by a by Benedictine um, monk that he had a deathbed conversion, and so I I will accept that as uh, true. Uh, I think that um, Will Durant's History of Civilization, which is I think 11 volumes, I I have it. People hear that and they <laughs> they just like, what in the world? Will Durant wrote beautifully. I can remember, I mean, here's a line from, from Durant on, on uh, Richard the Lionhearted. Richard, 
gallop through the last decade of the 12th century with such daring and bravado that his fellow poets, for he was a poet, ranked him with Arthur Alexander and Charlemagne. And I think, bravo. That is <laughs> that is beautifully written. That's a beautiful turn of phrase. And, and Durant's opinions are such that he's, he's not cloaked in what he thinks. In other words, you're free to disagree with him. And I like that about him because... Durant will pronounce very strongly on a topic, and you may go, I agree with that. No, I, I, I don't agree with that, but I'm enjoying him. He is a pleasure to read because he wrote beautifully. William Manchester, um, uh, I don't, I think his book on the Middle Ages is horrible. Um, he, he was out of his depth on that, um, but. His, uh, uh, the Last Lion series, mm -hmm. which my good friend um, Paul Reed wrote the third volume of, is, uh, is excellent. Barbara Tuckman um, on World War I, uh, terrific little book, 1964, The Guns of August. Uh, Robert Massey, uh, who sadly the world has lost. Uh, Rhodes Scholar, I think a very judicious historian um, on Russian history in particular. Hmm. Uh, is good. His his book on World War One called Dreadnought is is not his best work, but it's but it's good. And um, so these are all individuals that I would point to. But there are many others uh, that are much more academic. But when I'm looking for you know, so let's say I'm going to read something on uh, um, history of England, I'm going to look for George Macaulay Trevelyan. I'm going to look for George Babington Macaulay. Uh, I'm uh, I'm going to look for uh, certain historians that I go, I can trust that guy. Mm -hmm. He's he's good. Mm -hmm. uh, Russian historians, um, Orlando mm -hmm. Figes, who wrote a book called The Russian Tragedy. It's a it's a, he's a Cambridge historian. It's 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 superb. Um, and yeah, there's it, it depends on what field of history that you're talking about. But those are those are ones that immediately come to my mind. Thank you for More that. Than you I would <laughs> no, it's not. Um, I would have been remiss because often if I'm in my car listening to something and you know, someone like you has a vast fund of knowledge. Um, Churchill. You know Churchill's history yeah. of the English speaking peoples, which we have I just have sitting up here because I love them. Um, and I think I have the other two volumes sitting around here somewhere. There they are. Yeah. Those those volumes are fabulous. And again, beautiful. Beautiful turn of phrase. Isn't that and, inspiring? Yeah, well, because they took the language seriously. Yeah. And I, as a writer, not all writers do. I take I take every word seriously. I take the polishing of what I write seriously. I take the turn of phrase here. You know, uh, for instance, in the history of the English speaking history of the English speaking peoples, he's talking about the wrath of the British people um, against traitors. And he says that, uh, and it's just an, an image that sticks with you. He says, a, a people have the right to exact their vengeance on their own who have warmed their hands at the hearth of the enemy. Mm. What, what, what a, God. what, it's just beautifully written. It's just a joy to read. Mm. And, um, and, and Churchill's fun to read. Now, I will say Churchill had an advantage that almost nobody has. He had Oxford students and professional historians, teams of them, that um, would gather in his home, um, the, uh, Chartwell, mm -hmm. and they would work. Uh, Churchill was very famous for you know have these long dinner 
discussions with friends, you know, T.E. Lawrence or somebody like that would would come over. Lawrence of Arabia would come and, you know, hang out and and then he would put his guests to bed and then he would go and, and spend the evening lecturing and, and writing. And all these people were there prepared to receive dictation as he is, uh, um, as, you know, they're writing down these histories, but then they could polish it, check it for accuracy, all these kinds of things. And Churchill's name goes on the book. And I want to be clear, Churchill received a Nobel Prize for literature for a reason. He was mm-hmm. In his own right, he was a great writer. Mm. Um, again, beautiful turn of phrase in his biography, his autobiography. He says, I wasn't deemed intelligent enough to be taught Greek. <laughs> I was taught English, the mother tongue, which <laughs> which seeped into the marrow of my bones. It's It's wonderful stuff. But Churchill was a great writer, but he also had teams of historians who could polish his writing or say, you know, Mr. Churchill, that, that actually is... Yeah, that, that thesis has been rejected. We now go with this. But Churchill said very famously, history will treat me kindly, for I shall write it. <laughs> <laughs> well, going from that brilliant person and those wonderful uh, resources, historians, thank you for that. That was a little diversion, but I really, <laughs> I, that was very selfish of me. Um, because, I don't know if we're getting his stuff people like or not. But no, anyway, go I, ahead. <laughs> I, I think that there are people, just wait, That'll say, I would like to know that, and I don't know, and they don't they don't have access, and so here we go. There are books for you to read, people to check out. Um, now, we're only going to go to number three because I want people to download the article and read it because it's excellent. A, but B, it's very interesting. The last two that you have in your list and the others that we skipped. I did for a reason because I want people to see it for themselves and engage with that because it's interesting and I agree with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, got to the end and I was like, yes, that, that was no one else would. I, I don't know if anybody else would have put that and yet it is extraordinarily impactful. So I'll leave it there. Number three affects my life and that's not meaning to be selfish, but it affects so many people's lives and that's Margaret Sanger. Yeah. Um, well, what do you have to say about Margaret Sanger? I have to say that Margaret thought that we were human weeds. Um, and uh, Black people in particular. Black people in particular were we, human she weeds. She said privately, we, we can't let people know that we want to exterminate the black race. And we can't let people know that we will hire black pastors to tell people that this is what we want them to do. And so, um, excuse me, now it's me that's going to cough. I'm not going to cough. Uh, she destroyed single-handedly generations generations 61 63 million at at last count human lives placing her clinics she's in mild territory in low-income areas on purpose and it's often been said that people i've heard people say well that's not really what margaret said well i've read what she's written yeah i've read her books i've read her i've read the private letter an evil woman. Yep. And I was thankful you included her on the list. Margaret Sanger definitely deserves to be on this list. And yet her statue is among the <laughs> many honored in, uh, in the, the Smithsonian. Smithsonian. Yeah. In the Smithsonian. I was, I was thinking there for a second where, where it was. But yes, it is in the Smithsonian. Uh, Margaret Sanger was a, an incredibly evil individual. And you know I have nothing to add to what you just said. So here's what we'll do. For the men and women who are enjoying the content, who are enjoying your website, who enjoy reading your books, which 
If you do not have any Christmas ideas, <laughs> here are some ideas right here. Numero uno, dos, and tres right there. <laughs> this one is on my shelf on the left side of my fireplace. Uh, Chris gave this one away, so I'm going to have to rebuy it. Uh, and if you want to read The Faith of Christopher Hitchens, he did not ask me to do these. I'm doing them for myself because they're outstanding books and they're great presents. But the real big ask today is if you appreciate the content, if you appreciate Fixed Point Foundation and what Larry is doing, I would ask you to consider giving a year-end donation um, by December 31st at 11.59 p.m., actually, um, because that would be worth your time so that this can continue. And I would like to thank everyone on behalf of you for giving for that consideration and even making plans not only for this year, but in the years to come. Because as long as we have Twitter, as long as we have the freedom of speech that we have right now, this is what we want to go out um, so that we are equipped and then we can equip other people uh, for the sake of the gospel and so that people know how to think, right? Um, so there you go. This is my ask and my plea for you today. I hope you will consider it. And um, let us know what you think. You got anything to add? No, ma'am. You said it perfectly. Uh, we hope that you have enjoyed this episode of the Larry Alex Taunton Show. We are very grateful that you are tuning in. We thank you for downloading um, each and every episode. Go check out the article, the top 10 evilest, that's an actual word, people of all time. And let me know what you think about number one. Let Larry know what you think about who he listed as number one. Engage with that. It's very, very interesting. Um, and then guess what? We'll see you next time. Turn out the lights. The party's over. They say that all. Ladies and gentlemen, we are grateful for the standing ovation, but there will be no encore for today's performance. Please exit the building in an orderly fashion. Thank you. Honey, can we leave now?